Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Let me ask you something. Are you on a journey with God, or have you arrived? Are you still willing to learn and grow and try new things, or have you erected boundaries around your current understanding and practice? Today, my guest is Kevin Gigu, a full-time minister at Christian Family Fellowship in Tip City, Ohio. Although he came from a background that stressed rigidity when manifesting the Holy Spirit, he's come to enjoy a greater freedom as he's continued on his journey. Not only does Gigu encourage us to remain open to God's leading, but he also shares how we shouldn't let fear of doing something wrong stop us from stepping out in faith. Here now is episode 381 Bible-fed, spirit-led, with Kevin Gigu. Thanks for joining me on Restitutio today. Kevin, I appreciate your time. Could you start us off by telling a little bit about how you became a Christian, a little bit about your background? Uh, Sure, Sean. Thanks for the invitation. We sure admire the work of Restitutio and your personal ministry and those that you you work with. So uh, we don't take this lightly. Thanks so much. I grew up in North Carolina. My family heritage is is Waldensian. And they were a bit like French Huguenots. So they've got quite a history in Italy of uh, taking a stand. uh, Yeah. I mean, how many crusades did you guys fight off? Yeah. (laughs) It, it at least goes back to the 1100s. They're still some of the only Protestants formally in Italy and have been for decades. And so the town I grew up in is named Valdez, North Carolina, the people of the valleys. And in 1893, my grandfather was 10 years old, jumped off the train from Italy, and they founded a town there at a church. And that's where I grew up in a small town. And so I had lots of questions as a young, a young uh, Waldensian Presbyterian. They went into the Presbyterian movement and uh, lots of questions. That was 49 years ago when I started really questing and selling uh, strobe lights and Led Zeppelin albums and buying uh, uh, Bibles and concordances and uh, (laughs) that kind of thing. About how old were you when that was going down? I was 15. Okay. I was in the boys choir and there was a, a traveling family troupe that came to town uh, in an amphitheater that's in town. And uh, all the churches came together for that. It was a revival for a whole week in the summertime. And I started going to that. And that was very different for Presbyterians to visit a an outdoor amphitheater revival. I'd never seen anything like it. They did an altar call and young Kevin went down the aisle in front of a small town group of people that uh, knew our family and everything. And I, when I turned back after making my personal commitment up front, I was never the same. I felt commissioned in a sense. I don't want to over make it mystical or anything, but I, I really felt a responsibility and a launching when I walked back up the aisle. It was, wow. it was serious business there. Right from that age, huh? Yes. And uh, when the, the troop uh, left town, we started a little group of, of folks that young people who were excited from that, from that revival, we call the group Jesus Junction, hmm. Jesus Junction. we started with about 60 young people that would meet 
and sit on the floor. And this was 1972 in the summer. And we would uh, play guitars and read good news for modern man and uh, pray. And it was a, a wild time. Uh, my parents gave me a lot of leeway to be involved in that kind of thing. We would go up and down the street at night. Uh, give me a J, give me an E, give me an S, uh, those kind of <laughs> things. You know, hippies for, for Jesus. And then a uh, someone who was into more biblical research, a biblical study, and had some classes, they came to visit our group from the next town over. So a bunch of young people who had taken a Bible class and they wanted to talk about it with our wild group, they came and that, that ended up kind of splitting our, our Jesus Junction group. And uh, the emotional ones uh, sort of faded away and many of them went back to their old, old lives. But many of us uh, started going to these Bible classes and we started our own. And at one time during high school days, we had as many as seven different home fellowships and they were all led by teenagers. Wow. And they met separately and then all together in big, larger meetings. So it was, it was quite a movement. Every so often in a Sunday school class, because I, I started teaching things that I was learning like crazy, and Sunday school classes uh, weren't big on using Bibles, and it was a lot of social stuff, and the leader was somebody that didn't want to do anything with it much, and so they let me teach everything I was learning, and it, it was a great explosive time for me uh, that summer. It became a, a fellowship, a serious fellowship, and then went off to college with it and was a, a missionary while in college in two different uh, missionary programs at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte, and uh, got degrees in two degrees in architecture and practiced architecture for 25 years mm. in different states around the country and uh, still love that profession, still maintain my license here in Ohio, but I've been doing ministry work full time with Christian Family Fellowship Ministry for the last 15 years. And uh, that's kind of my background. My wife sends love too, by the way, my wife, Sarah, and we have uh, three kids and six grandkids spread around, but uh, we love what you do and we uh, appreciate your work and the listeners, anything they can do for the Lord to promote his kingdom. Absolutely. Well, our topic today is the gifts of the spirit or manifestations of the spirit. Uh, could you share a little bit about your journey in this area? What were you taught? How have you grown? in your understanding here over the years? Well, to start off with, in calling it gifts of the Spirit, I have no problem referring to it that way. If I didn't have something and God gave it to me, it's a gift. He initiated it by His grace, and if it's a, it's a gift, an unearned gift of God's grace, then it's, it's in a sense a gift of the Spirit. I understand the point people try to make but uh, sometimes our theology can get so nitpicking that we try to get our own personal significance from drawing all these lines in the sand on terminology. Paul had a whole lot to say about the charisma and the charismata in the church. And uh, it's like the word faith. If, if you start uh, rejecting certain terms because you want to make a big point, it's, it's not a good thing. But yeah, gifts of the Spirit, manifestations of the Spirit. I'm excited about both of those things, the gifts and the evidencing of the gifts. Mm -hmm. And that's what's important in a believer's life. And that's a lifetime journey. That's something that you, it's all journey. It's, this is not, Christian living is not a, an arrival. 
it's it's all journey and uh it's it's growing and growing has growing pains and uh, pulling weeds and a few steps forward a few steps back and corrections and reproof and you might say half the bible was given for reproof and correction and if you're not getting it from that if you're not getting reproved and corrected when you read the word and drop a tear on the page every so often i think you're you're missing out on half of the reason paul said the whole book was given and the gifts of the spirit field is that way too sometimes to soften it i'll say the word giftings just to clean it up a little bit with and i've taught a lot on the the holy spirit i've had the opportunity over the years using a cell phone with young people uh and really all all ages uh, some people use a swiss army knife you know the idea of, of one <laughs> gift and many uses and, and that's not a, a bad way to look at it that a, you know a cell phone in in a sense has has one battery it has one power source and then i talk with the group about well what are what are nine of the things you can do because of that one power source on your cell phone and people bark out all the different things you can do and but with, without the battery there's no manifestations there's no evidences but it's all a gift god gave you the phone the battery <laughs> the ways to use it it's all from him so uh I grew up speaking in tongues since I was uh, 15 in, in my first Bible class with my ponytail and my good news for modern man. Uh, <laughs> so but, could you turn your head sideways? I just want to see if you have that ponytail on the back there. No, uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but my mom kept it in a drawer for too long. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, it was it was those days, you know, all a part of it. Well, I wonder if you could just explain very briefly as if you're speaking to somebody from a totally different background, what was the doctrinal understanding that you that you received? In particular, at what points would you differ on today? Would you be comfortable doing that? Differ on today from from what you had received? Yeah, yeah, uh, that's fair. If anyone is growing, they are changing. Uh, it's it's not a lust for being different. It's not, uh, I need, I'm bored with Ephesians. I need to come up with something else. So I, I do as much as I can to be Acts 17, 11, be like the Bereans, mm -hmm. to search the scriptures every day to see if what I've been taught is true. That's what they did. They had, of course, the Old Testament text primarily to do that, but it was scripture to them. And we do all that we can to grow and learn. And I heard you guys joking about what percentage of what you teach might be untrue that you don't know. <laughs> I've said that in front of groups for years, I, to, you know, to introduce myself, I said, you know, five, 10, 15% of what I say this weekend is going to be dead wrong. I just don't know what percentage that is. I was raised Sean with a, a lot of emphasis on sameness on what we all have, what we all can do. Uh, I think Paul maybe spoke, just as much, I don't know, percentage-wise, but he spoke a whole lot about diversity in the Holy Spirit field and the yeah. gifts of the Spirit field. And as we read Corinthians 12, I've come a long way in seeing the diversity in that text, 12, 13, 14, rather than we, we can all do everything all the time the same. There, there's more emphasis there on the differences between believers, and we, we need to celebrate that and applaud that. There are things all of us can do, or all of us are gifted with, 
And if we have the presence of the anointed one in us, it's his spirit. Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of God. It's called the Spirit of Christ. It's called the Spirit of Holiness. It's called Christ in you. In Acts 16, 7, it's called the Spirit of Jesus. That's the same Spirit. It's, it's not a, a walnut hanging by a red thread from our ribcage swinging around. It, it, it's not just sort of things banging around. It's, it's the power and presence, the invisible power and presence of God, the invisible power and presence of Christ inside of all of us all of us Christian believers, followers of Jesus, and that is the Holy Spirit. So there are things that we can all do, but some people have a long-suited gift in, in these, these things. I mean, prophecy in Romans 12, 7 and 8 through there, there's seven charismata listed there. One of those gifts is prophecy. In that section, it is the charisma, the charisma of prophecy. Uh, so if you don't like to call it a gift, then you're you're having trouble with Paul there. That's because I believe all believers can do it. All believers can overflow potentially at the right time with a supernatural inspired message of encouragement or foretelling either one among God's people, either individually or with a group. Yeah. But there are certain people that have a real unique gifting in those areas and they need to move in that, that, that gifting. And then even a third step beyond that, if you make a distinction there, is I think that some people are called to the office of some of these things, more of a distinguishing election, if you will, or, or, or gift and calling, if you will, to serve in the church in a certain category like this. And that's why Paul distinguished uh, healing uh, from uh, apostles, prophets, threw in healers and teachers and those kinds of things. Some people, even though everyone could potentially do it with Christ within, some people are gifted and called to to go and move in, in these giftings. So you're so you're saying we're not all to have the same evidences of the spirit, not that we couldn't, but that there's the diversity is actually intended by God. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this, because uh, a lot of people from our uh, background, from a way international background, they look at this list in 1 Corinthians 12 that has the different manifestations of the Spirit. We've got wisdom, knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, various kinds of tongues, interpretation of tongues. Uh, We have this list of nine. And a lot of people from our background would say, well, that is, those are, to use your analogy of the phone, those are the nine apps on your phone. And uh, so my question to you is, uh, are there other apps on the phone? Are there other manifestations of the Spirit other than these nine? And, uh, you know, if so, why do you think it's good to, to sort of go beyond the nine here? In mm-hmm. other words, why not stay within those, that clear boundary there? I think that's a tremendous uh, category of discussion because uh, we like to package things. Uh, We don't like ambiguity. We like lists. It's like Dake's Bible, you know, uh, Mr. Dake, a charismatic uh, Bible guy. He had a list for everything and sub lists. and, And we like that because we like to say, look, Paul believed in these four things and these five sub points 
And that's what he believed. I'm not sure if you went up to the Apostle Paul today and said, hey, let's talk about the nine manifestations. I, I think he might look at you and say, uh, okay, uh, what was that again? Uh, which <laughs> list is that? I mean, I'm, I'm not discounting that we have nine in Corinthians. We have nine fruit of the Spirit, right, in Galatians 5. But uh, it breaks my heart that hope didn't make the list uh, or wisdom didn't make the list of one of the, the fruit of the Spirit. Um, faith and charity made it, but not hope. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways. The same in Romans 12, the, the charismata, you know, it, it's as specific and broad as givers. Are you a giver? Are you a minister? Are you a servant? We, we just love, we hate ambiguity because then sometimes we know some things and we don't know some things and we don't like seeing through a glass darkly, Corinthians 13. We, we hate that because we want to know that we know that we know about everything. I've got a three and a half pound brain. God's hand spans the universe. I'm supposed to be bullet pointing systematic theology. Paul wasn't writing systematic theology to the Corinthians. No, he wasn't. There's verses, I mean, we may even be missing a book or two, a letter or two that he wrote that he refers to the Corinthians. Uh, there's the last verse right before Corinthians 12 that, that seems to say, uh, you know, that other thing that we were talking about, uh, we'll, we'll clear that up when I get there. You don't have any idea what he's talking about there. Uh, or in, to, in Philemon, where he says, perhaps, he uses the word, well, perhaps this is what that meant. We don't like that because we don't like seeing through a glass darkly. And uh, th that's a part of that, that sort of answer, I think, is we get too hung up on these are the nine. God can't show himself in any other way. Do you see my point in that? Sean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think there is a serious craving that many of us have, uh, especially people living in the 20th century and, uh, you know, the 19th really as well. Uh, for a, a sort of scientific certainty, you know, this enlightenment mindset, modernism that says, look, you can define everything and applying that same kind of precision that ended up giving us so many incredible types of technology and mechanical systems and architecture, your own field, and applying that to Scripture as if, as if Scripture is itself something that can be neatly packaged and defined. Uh, I think coming into the 21st century, what we've really seen over the last 20 years is, is a move away from that, where uh, the, the younger generation today is more interested in experience than they are systematic theology. I'm not, and uh, these are broad categories. There are yeah. plenty of exceptions on that. Yeah. But uh, I, I think that was really kind of a product of the time, that way of looking at it that you just described. And uh, that's not to say plenty of people today don't still operate with that mindset. I think there are plenty of people do, and there are advantages to being very meticulous and systematic, uh, but there are, there are uh, things you miss out on as well. I mean, what, what was it for you, looking back on your own history, where you, you started to look at other expressions of the Spirit, other Spirit activity, that you said, you know what, that might not be wacky. That might be authentic. That might actually be from God. Do you remember like a specific incident or? It w yes. The first time I spoke in a language I never learned introduced me to the idea that maybe God was more than Presbyterian, uh, that maybe the Holy Spirit is not uh, a mysterious, mystical goo 
but that it was the activity of God in Christ, uh, their presence and power in the world among us. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can't see that. And I mean, if you own a Bible, then you own a long list of things that are both wacky and God's will at the same time. That's so much of scripture is just outside of your comfort zone the moment you open it. I suspect the shadow of Peter freaked a few people out. I suspect touching a hem of a garment to heal or mud in eyes or walking on water. I suspect the handkerchiefs of, of Paul passing out ripped clothing from his work clothes and healing and casting out devils with pieces of cloth. Uh, From my past, I would have busted into the main office and said, somebody's off the word out here. Peter has lost it. He's saying, somebody said that his shadow was healing some people. And that can't be true because I'm uncomfortable with it, first of all, and I, you know, it can't be of God if I'm uncomfortable with it. And the, the famous line we used to use is, uh, show me that in the word. Well, right. show me that in the word. Peter's shadow healing can't be true because I can't find a scripture that promises that to everyone. I don't know that Jesus healed the same way two different times. You know, a lot of times today, an evangelical or a charismatic, when they see a blind person, the idea of mud crosses their mind. Uh, I don't know that, that Jesus ever thought about mud again when he saw a blind person or spittle, you know, the spittle of a holy man. So uh, I don't know that I would call those, Sean, manifestations of the Spirit. I don't think when God does something unique, I wouldn't say, oh, well, then now there's 10 manifestations. Oh, now there's 18. Well, then now there's, you know, it's a, it's a little bit well, like. A, what would you a, call them? Well, in the old days, I would call them phenomenon, but they are evidences of the presence and power of God in Christ. They are overflow. The body of Christ and the Spirit of God don't need to be controlled. They need to be, uh, we need to be led by the Spirit. And that's childlike. We need to be ready for the unpredictable. And for a lot of years, I thought that the sharpest leader was the person that had virtually no unpredictability in his life at all, where you'd set up an order of service in a meeting and say, okay, here's the order of service. And afterwards, a great meeting is one that I was in control of. Not a single thing happened that I didn't plan to happen and check, check, check right off the line. Mm-hmm. It's my three and a half pound brain. And then I would say afterwards, well, we, the devil didn't get in our meeting by golly, you know, nothing happened that we didn't know ahead of time and plan for it to happen. Well, yeah, the devil probably didn't, you think he didn't get in, but the Holy Spirit also sounds like didn't make it in. And uh, (laughs) we're so afraid, Sean, of being wrong. Uh, I'm not afraid. I want to be chasing. I want to be seeking. I want to be hungry for the presence of God. I want to be ready for an encounter with the presence of God. I mean, Scripture just overflows with God interrupting the life of people, and he does it through the Holy Spirit. God's activity in the world is called spirit. Here's the thing. When I was a teenager and I took some of my first Bible classes, one of the points that the teachers made, he read the verse in Acts about, and the place was shaken where they were assembled. And his joke there was, you know, ladies and gentlemen, if that happened today, there'd be nothing but funerals. 
I'm at the place in my life, I don't want to attend a meeting unless there isn't the potential of that place being shaken where we're assembled. Mm-hmm. You know, he made the joke, if that happened today, there'd be nothing but funerals because yeah, people... Yeah, I don't, I don't get the joke. What's, why would there be funerals? Well, the, the joke is they would fall over dead if, if God surprised them. Oh, because they would have in, like a heart attack or something. Yes, they would have okay. a heart attack if, if God moved with such dynamic power and uh, unpredictability. If, if God healed with a shadow today, people f- would run out screaming because it doesn't fit their experience and their theology and their comfort level. Yeah. I mean, when I think of Jesus and how he was going off book with uh, so many of the different things he did, like when he told the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. I mean, boy, did those Pharisees not like that. You know, they were saying, who is this guy to, you know, he's doing it wrong. This is not how you deal with the sick. And then uh, other times where Jesus would heal someone, you know, like the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath— in synagogue, you right. know, he's doing it wrong. Right. And, uh, you know, Jesus was going off book. He was he was following the prompting of God's Spirit within him, which we know, you know, from the baptism, it came down like a dove and, and all the rest of it, that the, the Spirit of God was very much influential to, to a maximum degree, if we could put it that way, in yeah. the ministry of Jesus, that Jesus Jesus isn't just making stuff up. He is following God's leading here. You mentioned the phrase, Bible-fed and Spirit-led. Yeah. Uh, maybe you could explain a little bit about that. Is, that. is that saying that the Bible is your basis, but then God leads you as far as what you actually do? Or maybe unpack that a little bit for me. Sure. I, I don't think we get to pick between those two. The Bible came by the Spirit and is understood by the Spirit, and so separating the significance of, of Bible or Spirit is, is like saying, if you had a baseball team, which would you rather have, the pitcher or the catcher? Some things in life you don't get to pick. Some things in, in Christian living are so significant that they cannot be replaced by other significant things. In the least common denominator, they are boiled down as far as they can go. You can't pray so much that you don't need to read Scripture. You can't read Scripture so much that you don't need to witness. You can't witness so much you don't need to give. You can't give so much you don't need to get with believers. And Bible-fed and Spirit-led, you don't get to pick. It's like doctrine and practice. Which is more important, doctrine or practice? Well, that's kind of a silly question. You can't pick between those two because you're you're practicing right believing, and and doctrine it, it, you're just a Pharisee if you have doctrine and no no practice. So Bible fed, spirit led, our feet are solid on the Scripture as much as we can, and we learn and grow and change, and we're spirit led, and that's messy. The spirit, Holy Spirit field, the gifts of the Spirit is a messy, messy field. And again, if, if people are so afraid of what other people think of them or they're so afraid of being wrong, I think God's offended sometimes if his children and that he asks to be children and grow in maturity, that we are so afraid of being wrong, uh, so afraid of Adam showing up in our life that uh, it keeps us from being seekers. God needs seekers. We should be as hungry. I'm as hungry right now for the things of the Spirit and the things of Scripture as I was 
you know, in Jesus Junction in 1972, 49 years ago. And so we, we can't be afraid. We're more afraid of what the devil might do in our life than we are uh, fearless about God showing up in a special way. Yeah. You know, when, when Peter was teaching in Acts and it says the spirit fell on them. I don't like that verse from my past. I would, you know, the spirit fell on them. What are you talking about? That sounds too unpredictable. That's not in my order of service. That's not, we can't allow that. It, it, uh, we might mislead somebody. Well, you're going to make mistakes. And the problem is that we have felt, one of the problems, we have felt that if I go by scripture, I'll never make a mistake because it's just right there in black and white. But if I if I get into all this Holy Spirit field, if I get too Pentecostal or charismatic, then uh, you, no telling what kind of mistakes you'll make. Mm-hmm. Well, you're right. But people make just as many mistakes in exegesis and hermeneutics uh, in Scripture as they do in the Holy Spirit field. They just don't like to admit it because they we, we read something in a, a text and we have such a perspective on it that uh, we say, well, obviously, if, if you love God, if you read the word, then it's right. And nobody can make a mistake there. My goodness, the Holy Spirit field is, is messy and unpredictable, and it's growing, and it's childlike, and it's all journey. It's not a rival. We need to expect God to show up and stop being so afraid the devil might show up. Yes, that's part of the problem. Some people have never had the devil in their meetings. There's never been somebody there that needs deliverance. They, they only let clean people in. Hmm. Uh, what we're called to the valley of human need, that's the messiest place around. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to say the wrong thing. That's Christian living. That's growth. That's why forgiveness is vital. That's why it's called a fight against authorities and powers. We're in a fight. Yeah. We're yeah. ducking and weaving. I wonder if you could get specific, like what sorts of things have you seen that don't fit into the the nine mentioned in 1 Corinthians? I mean, biblically, some of the things I mentioned about the handkerchiefs of Paul and the shadow of Peter, if there's two or three of those things, there could be a thousand of those things. Sure. So I know that sometimes there are charismatic or Pentecostal traditions of expression yeah, in charismatic churches, sometimes people will fall on the floor, or they'll laugh, or they'll clap, or they'll raise hands, or they'll, you know, maybe jump up and down in an expression. Uh, we see those things all at basketball games, and we think nothing of it. And in fact, if, <laughs> if, if they didn't do it at a basketball game, we would think something was wrong. But again, here we are trying to mandate people's expression and tradition and calling it our doctrine. And a lot of that's because we want to control people. And a lot of that's because we're afraid of what people think. And a lot of that's because we're afraid that if somebody starts hounding out handkerchiefs to heal people, well, that can't be because, you know, they're going to say, show me that in the word. Well, I'll show you that in the word. What's in the word is walk by the spirit, Hmm. walk by the spirit. I wish it was more specific than that walk by the spirit. Sometimes you're going to be right. Sometimes you're going to be wrong, just like in biblical interpretation. Sometimes you're going to be wrong, but you're a child on a journey. Uh, Sometimes in Old and New Testament times, there were times where people would fall down in the presence of of God or in the presence of something that God was doing. In 2 Chronicles 5.14 is where it says, uh, so that the priest could not stand to minister 
because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. There's a weightiness, even in the Hebrew terminology, there's a weightiness to the presence of God. There's a weightiness to God's glory. There's a weightiness to God's presence and power. And I think some of that is tied into the idea of worship, of bowing down, of prostrating ourselves. In, in our country, we shake hands when we want to express something. In Japan, they, they bow at the, the waist to express something. In the South, years ago, women would curtsy to express their respect for someone. In Bible times, they would hit the dust sometimes. We think it's being, you know, we, then we bring up the verse about being decent and in order. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to go there next because you had just mentioned about the meeting and the order of service and the old tradition that we have received of having everything very regimented, exactly so many people to speak in tongues. The same person that speaks in tongues has to interpret, and then so many people for prophecy, and that ends this time of the Holy Spirit, and then we move on to the next thing, and, and the teaching is so long, and there are so many songs and all the rest of it. Uh, yeah. I'm curious how your so services are these days, and how you incorporate Holy Spirit time into the service, and if you do, in fact, leave it more open, then how do you understand this command, really, to be decent and in order that we see in 1 Corinthians 14? So I'm just curious, like, how do you work it all out together, being Spirit-led and yet not devolving into total chaos? Yes, and that's the question that you should ask. You can certainly be too extreme by too much control, and you can certainly be too extreme by it being utterly spontaneous and out of control. I mean, it, when you plan something, you can plan a meeting by the Spirit. You can plan a meeting by the Holy Spirit where it's inspired what you're doing and how you're doing it. But if we don't let God interrupt our personal lives— and if we don't let God at times interrupt the gathering of the ecclesia, the church, then we're too much in control. I mean, the people that spoke in tongues and prophesied when Peter was teaching, when the Spirit fell on them, it was poured out on them. I don't think Peter was too bothered, and it certainly was not in the order of service. So in our small group meetings, sometimes I will just say, Let's have a time of prayer, praise, and prophecy. And I'll just open it up that if someone has a specific supplication they want to bring forth to the Father, then they can offer that then. Uh, if someone has uh, just a, a prayer of praise to God for who He is, I think that's important that we have those, those times, not just a checklist of my needs, but just uh, like the Psalms. So, so prayers, praises, and if someone has a prophetic word from the Lord, from God or Christ to a meeting that they feel like is busting out of their chest and needs to be said, then there's that time for that. And you can keep it directed, you know, appropriately like a shepherd would shepherd sheep. You know, they don't all have to walk in a straight line or you kill the sheep you know, you keep them in the same herd and keep them blessed. And in the same way, a larger meeting, I mean, if there's more people, there's obviously a little more uh, framework to it. Right. But we're, we're not afraid to stop in the middle of 
of something and have have a prophetic word or lay hands on the sick or stop and pray about something. It doesn't have to be confusing. And you don't say, well, the more spontaneous it is, the more godly it is. Uh, God, like I said, you can plan something by the Holy Spirit, but you better allow God to interrupt your meeting in your life with his presence. Mm-hmm. And that's one way that you're going to wrestle against, against the other kingdom is if people are, are willing to come to your meetings where they've got some darn needs in their life, and some of them are, are fairly deep. Yeah. So our meetings are not much different than probably what you have been used to over the years, but we, we do have speaking in tongues and interpretation and messages and, and prophetic utterances in our meetings. And we think that's one of the great missing things in the body of Christ that we believe continue. Very good. So it's not that attending your meeting is like a Quaker meeting where everyone's silent and then whoever the spirit moves begins to speak or sing or, or do something like oh. that. It, there's more structure to it than sure. that. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, it's not like an old way meeting where everything is figured out ahead of time and you're going to follow the script. There's a, a lot more openness to the spirit leading into this or that, or dealing with a situation, a very real need that somebody brings in, even a healing or demonic manifestation where you need to you need to cast the spirit out or something like that. Certainly that happened to Jesus, didn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> you remember that time he's teaching in the synagogue and that guy just freaked out and started manifesting a demon and Jesus is like, all right. He, he stopped teaching and he dealt with it. Yeah. You know? Sean, sometimes we, we feel like our, our purpose in life is to identify what we call counterfeits. And we get a PhD in counterfeit identification. And at the end of our life, we say, well, at least I called out 3,000 Christians for their counterfeit behavior. And then you say, well, how many genuines did you see? And you say, well... I saw a handful of genuine things, but by golly, I was especially expert at crying against anything that any other Christian was doing that I was uncomfortable with. How do you even know what counterfeits are if you aren't seeing the genuine, if you're not hungry enough to see the genuine? And and healing could happen a different way every time. If you see a, a woman pushing a man at the mall in a wheelchair, the spirit of God could, could send you their way just because there are shiny chrome wheels. It doesn't mean you're over there to lay hands on the guy in the wheelchair. Your calling might be over to the woman pushing the man and to deliver her and to help her and encourage her. We just need the spirit of God. We just need to be unafraid for goodness sakes. How would, how would you act if you weren't afraid is a great question to ask. Yeah. What I hear you saying is walking by the Spirit. But let me ask you also about other Christian groups. If somebody says, I don't want to, I don't want to pursue the Holy Spirit field. I don't want to pursue manifestations of the Spirit. I'm not interested in that, or my group's not interested in that. How would you regard that person? Would you say, well, you're you're not really saved then because you're not carrying out the different evidences of the Spirit, or would you say, oh, no, you're fine, you're just not experiencing as much as you could be, or how, how do you look at people that, I don't want to use 
really the word cessationist, but maybe hyper-skeptical folks, what would you say to them? You know, the, the question might be, can you be saved apart from manifesting the Spirit is another way to ask that question. I, I might say, can you be Bill Gates' son without spending money? Every Christian that's ever lived is on a different journey in a sense. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the path. But everybody is on a different journey of, of learning and growing and course correction and experience. I love the word experience in this category, but I, I learn from everybody. I, I learn from, you know, I, I don't visit a church now and sit on the back row if I'm visiting for some reason. I don't sit on the back row and think, oh, I wish I could fix these people. Or, oh, do you hear what he said? I wish I could set him straight on that. No, he's on a journey and I'm on a journey. And if Jesus is the Lord of the journey, then I need to walk in my giftings, but I need to applaud his effort in walking in those giftings. And so I'm very careful about prejudging every blooming thing. That's Part of the problem is that we prejudge things. And so we say, well, if I ever see that or if I ever hear that, I know it's wrong and I know they can't be walking with God. The, the, the only people God has ever had to work with outside of the Lord Jesus himself, the only kind of people he's ever had to work with were messy, wackadoodle, weird people. And that's the only people that have ever gotten revelation outside of Jesus is flawed sinners. It's like I stood up and did a wedding a few months ago, and I said, each of you is marrying a sinner. And uh, that's not very pleasant. I mean, uh, some people don't like the word <laughs> sinner. But... Remind, remind me not to have you do weddings. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, you, you... But it is true, setting some realistic expectations, right? Yes, absolutely. And, and as soon as we start beating our chest about accuracy and rightness and arrival and plateau it's it's it can be pride there's a there's a humility to the truth a humility we need to be as confident as jesus in what we believe but we need to be as humble and meek as jesus in what we believe and if we have more confidence than humility that's a problem if we have more humility than confidence that can also be a problem we need to hold on to things, but hold on tightly to the right things and hold on loosely to the right things. And I'm very careful about my absoluteness. And we talk about accuracy. Uh, we love the word accuracy. And I think it's, it's been misleading for people because you turn into where you feed, you become where you feed, you, you turn into the author that's your, if, if you have one author, one theology, one book, you know, your favorite YouTuber, podcaster, whatever, you're going to turn into that theology. And I think there's a richness. If Ephesians is right, then the, the body of Christ, it's in the church, the manifold wisdom of God, the multifaceted wisdom of God. There's a richness that I can get from the assistant youth pastor at the Lutheran church down the street. If God crosses my path with his, I need to be ready and willing to learn from anywhere that God is moving and working. And I don't need a PhD in calling out, you know, the, the ways I think everybody is wrong. I yeah. just think that's yeah. misleading. 
depressing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Kevin. I really appreciate it. Is there any uh, final remarks you'd like to make? Any concluding statements? I guess I wanted to say that I always prided myself in a definition of the word for to know, uh, gnosko, and it's to know personally by experience is, is how we used to say all the time, to know personally by experience. But we didn't like the word experience, and yet we loved the definition of gnosko. To know God is to experience God. In fact, uh, many Greek translators will take the word gnosko and gnosis as coming to know or to get to know. That's where that idea of experience comes in. It's, it's the journey of knowing. I think we need to be willing to experience the truth. It's not experience for experience sake, but it's a, a hungry desire to experience the truth. And experiencing the truth is ex experiencing the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, the Christ within, that's part of my desire is that we not we don't only experience a knowledge of the scriptures, but we experience the uniqueness and the uh, the move of the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's a part of knowing God is experiencing His presence and power. That's what I think uh, can can help us be fearless in moving ahead. Uh, we're supposed to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The, the great. <laughs> You know, the first and great commandments to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I think that's four ways of saying love him with everything, 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 everything. Right. That involves my emotions, my feelings. That involves my intellect, my wisdom, my knowledge. We've acted as if intellect was God-designed and emotions were devil-designed. And so if we feel something, we think every feeling is from the devil and every intellect is from God. Well, that's silly. Uh, the Garden of Eden, the word Eden means delight or pleasure. He intended every follower of his, God did, forever to live in a garden of pleasure and delight. That's all about feelings and emotions. And so we need to dedicate not only our intellect, not only our knowledge, not only our research skills to the Lordship of Jesus, but we need to dedicate the richness of our emotions and our feelings and our passions and desires to the Lordship of Jesus. And those things will work together as we're Bible fed and spirit led. Very good. Very good. Thanks for sharing with me today, Kevin. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Well, that concludes this interview. Thanks for listening to the end. And that also concludes this seven part series on the gifts of the spirit. If you'd like to find out more about Kevin Gigu, you can go to Christian Family Fellowship's website, CFFM. M is in ministry.org, cffm.org, and I also have a link to the YouTube channel in the show notes for this episode, as well as a link to a number of Gigu's audio teachings as well. What did you think about what he said here in this episode? Would love to hear your comments, your questions, your pushback at restitudio.org. Just come on and find episode 381, Bible Fed, Spirit Led with Kevin Gigu, and leave your comment so that we can engage in fruitful dialogue on this topic. Speaking of which, a number of people have written in on last week's episode with Carlos Jimenez, 380 Test of Spirits, where Carlos essentially laid out the exact opposite position as Kevin. 
that was very much intentional to give you a flavor of what are the different options out there on the Holy Spirit field. And only once you see all the options can you even hope to make an informed decision. Ultimately, what really matters is what the Bible says and how we interpret Scripture honestly and then courageously live it out. Craig Astor wrote in on the interview from last week where where Carlos shared a very skeptical view of the Holy Spirit manifestations and wrote the following. Great program. My question would be, is there a difference between the gift of tongues, per 1 Corinthians 12.10, as the Spirit wills, for the edification of the body when accompanied with the interpretation of tongues, and what is the initial sign evidence of the individual's baptism in the Holy Ghost, which appears to be speaking in an unknown tongue by the five accounts recorded in the book of Acts? I do agree there is blatant abuse among some causing disruption and confusion when a person is unable to control their own spirit during corporate worship and assembly. This confusion has caused many to forbid speaking in tongues, which leads to quenching the spirit, in my opinion. Keep up the great work. Well, Craig, I think we covered that somewhere between 375 and 378, where John Truitt and then Greg Dibel both spoke and then had some dialogue on the subject. But essentially what everyone is working with here, as far as the people I interviewed, the speaking in tongues in the book of Acts, I mean, specifically Acts chapter 2, but also the other incidents, we are looking at as the same as what happened in the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. We're not, we're not making a distinction there as if there is a separate heavenly prayer language that is different than actually speaking a foreign language miraculously. So that's kind of where we came down on that. Uh, if you have good evidence on another position on that, I'd for one, be curious to hear it. It's not from my background, so I don't know much about it, but uh, I know that there are a good deal, a good number of Christians who come from that position, and if they have biblical warrant, I would, I would want to see it. Uh, but so far as I could tell, the, the vocabulary is too similar, or I, you maybe even identical, to make a, a good distinction between Corinthians and Acts on the subject. Kent Wheeler also wrote in saying, Good job. I understood you fine. I think maybe I didn't know. The Carlos interview is somewhere near my view. Don't get me wrong. I want the fullness of God. Just thinking Just thinking the fruit is more important evidence than a gift. That is questionable. Keep up the good work. Uh, well, Kent, thanks for writing in again. As far as your, your point about the fruit of the Spirit vis-a-vis the gifts or manifestations of the Spirit, I guess I would want to say that I'd rather not split those apart. I'd rather not say, oh, well, you have this, but not that. I I do agree with you that the fruit of the Spirit are for everyone. We're all to do all those things. We're all to evidence that fruit of gentleness, goodness, love, self-control, etc. Whereas when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit, and this this is my view, it's maybe not your view or other people's view, I don't see it as universal as the same experience for every Christian. And I base that on 1 Corinthians 12. I base that on personal experience, myself, and on seeing other people's experience. And so, uh, and so that's, kind of, that's kind of where I land on it, that in agreement with what Victor Gluckin shared in episode 
379, gifts of the Spirit for the common good, that God equips believers differently to do different jobs, just like the body analogy. We're not all the tongue. Uh, some of us do different things within the church, and that's the way God wants it, and it's okay, and there's freedom. And maybe that'll change over time. Maybe maybe in, in one period of your service to the body of Christ, in your local congregation, you are performing one role, and then God calls you into another role. You know, I, I think when it comes to the Spirit, a lot of what Kevin Gigu said here really resonated with me about not trying to tame the wildfire of God, which is the Holy Spirit. It's the sort of thing that once, you, once you've got it all nailed down and everything is tightly packaged and every corner is, is nice and sharp at 90 degrees, then suddenly you realize, oh, you forgot something. Or, oh, there's this other biblical evidence or this other expression of the Spirit that doesn't fit into this really nice box that you've made for it. Uh, and so I, I think w- w- when it comes to this subject, we really do need to be flexible. We really need to be supple, pliable in the hands of God to serve Him in whatever situation we have. Uh, I love Greg Dibel's story about the missionaries in Papua New Guinea who, from, from what I could tell, are not from a charismatic background, are not doing speaking in tongues as if it's like, all right, let's just do this. No, they were led by God, and they spoke in that foreign language having never learned it. I, I think that's such, a, such an example for us of being willing to follow God's prompting wherever he leads us in a particular situation. Uh, one other thing I'd like to mention at this, at this juncture is that sometimes people see a, an expression of the Spirit. Take, for example, laughing in the Spirit. This is something we didn't get specifically into in this series, and it's, it's not part of my background or, or my, what we do at my church, uh, but I know it is something that's very common. And uh, what I see with that one and others like it is you, you've got a few really strong responses. On the one hand, you've got somebody that says, this is a genuine evidence of God's Spirit in this person's life, and we should all be doing it too. And in fact, at every worship service we have, we should have somebody tell a joke to get people laughing and really embrace the laughter in the Spirit. And then you've got other people that say, well, you, you know, it's not listed in the Bible, so therefore it's illegitimate, and it's either just made up or it's demonic. And so we have those kind of two point of views on it. And then there's another point of view that says, well, the first time it happened, it was legitimate, but then every time after that, it's just people parroting that kind of behavior And it's just a learned behavior. Same thing with slain in the Spirit, drunk in the Spirit, and these other sorts of things. I don't think it's really that cut and dry. I mean, my view on these these other sorts of things, having read, for example, Barton Stone's autobiography, he talks about barking in the Spirit, jerks in the Spirit, all kinds of weird stuff that I think most of us would say, hey, this is just way outside of my comfort zone. And Barton Stone is a really kind of a straight-laced 1800s guy. I mean, he's not... And this is and this is pre-Pentecost movement, just just so you know. And and there's all kinds of weird stuff happening at the Cane Ridge revival in Kentucky, is what I'm referring to. And so I think we need to just be open on the on the one hand, and on the other hand, not not put all this pressure to do something if God's not making it happen, if God's not leading, inspiring people to it, then then don't force it either. So that's kind of my view on it. Uh, I realize that uh, I've 
had my cards fairly close to the chest, but I wanted to come out of the closet a little bit here at the end of this series and uh, and tell you what I think. Levi Sawyers also wrote in on last week's episode. Uh, he writes in, he says, I've been following this series closely and have really enjoyed hearing the variety of positions that come along with this subject. In light of Carlos's interview, I would really like to hear more dialogue on a certain point without putting words in Carlos's mouth. I got the sense that he would dismiss miraculous events based off the doctrinal positions the people in question may hold. He made comments that led me to believe he would dismiss alleged miracles performed by any Calvinist and any Trinitarian. While I respect Carlos and the evidentialist position he outlined, I would really like to hear more discourse about which doctrinal camps you must fall into in order to have God work miraculously in your life. For example, must you be correct on every account? Are there certain doctrines that act as a minimum threshold before God will perform miracles through you? And if so, where do you draw the line? Will God perform greater miracles the more correct you are? I may be wrong, but this scriptural correctness as a metric to determine miracles' authenticity seems to lie at the heart of this quote-unquote test of spirits position. I'd be interested to hear which requirements Carlos and others would list in order to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.38 seems to provide only two. Uh, those who are not familiar, Acts 2.38 says, repent and be baptized. Carlos writes back, Levi, thank you for listening and for your thoughtful, well-laid-out questions. If we continue to read 1 John 4, you will notice that the apostle goes on to teach how to test the spirits, in other words, by what they teach. And obviously, said teachings must line up with whatever Jesus and his apostles taught. God is one person. The gospel is about the kingdom. Baptism into Christ for the remission of sins, the human son, and not God the Son, etc., the pro- he goes on, the problem I see in legitimizing people representing other systems, mainly Trinitarianism, is confusion. If God is approving false doctrines by the standards of Scripture, isn't that confusing? That's why I brought up Deuteronomy 13, where the test is not whether or not the prophet in question is performing actual miracles, but the true test is what they teach. They lead you to other gods. Hope this helps. Levi's comment really resonates with me here as well. Because if I if I imagine for a moment, obviously tr- trying to figure out what God will do in any given situation is a very <laughs> difficult thing to imagine. But if I imagine for a moment that God has maybe even just an atheist or a Hindu, so- somebody from another background than Christianity, and somebody's down there and they're in all kinds of pain and struggling, and the Hindu prays to their gods— and the atheist just sort of moans and groans into the empty universe. Look, if God wants to heal those people, if God wants to do some miracle, who am I to say he can't do that? Who am I to say, oh, well, the atheist doesn't even believe in God, so therefore God can't heal his ulcer or cancer or whatever the problem is? Oh, well, the Hindu is an idolater, therefore... God can't heal her problem with miscarriages? I don't know. That doesn't seem true to me. Whatever God does with people who are outside of the covenant, whatever God does with people that are outside of his people that are in a committed relationship with him, that's totally up to him. That's totally his business. 
And then even once you come into the covenant, even once you come into the Jesus people, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of wrong doctrines. And you know, like we mentioned in this episode, we mentioned in a previous episode, I bet you, dear listener, even have some doctrines that are askew. I bet I have some doctrines that are askew. That's why we keep trying. That's why we keep going. That's why we're at 380-something episodes, because restoring authentic Christianity is not just like, oh, I read the Bible once, and now I understand everything correctly. And it's not, oh, I I read Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, the second edition, and therefore now I know exactly what the truth is. Or I I read Victor Weirwell's book, or I I read uh, Anthony Buzzard's book, and therefore I know exactly what the truth is. No, that's not—it's just not that simple. We're fallible people separated by so much time, a language, a culture, a geography, and so on, that it's easy for us to get things wrong. We use iron to sharpen iron, and we move closer to the truth as we journey forward. And who, who am I to say that God doesn't grant others the ability to speak in tongues or to heal or whatever? If God wants to show mercy to people who are wrong, then God can show merciful to people who are wrong. He says, I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. That's what it means to be God, is that he's in charge, he decides what he's going to do. And there's, there's no sense in getting angry at God because he gives a word of prophecy to some Calvinist or some somebody from another background that has some sort of doctrinal error. I, I don't see this restrictivism as being legitimate or supported by Scripture. Now, on the other hand, Carlos does actually have a really good point. You do need to test the spirits. There are false spirits. He's right about that. And some of us are so darn gullible that we just, oh, so-and-so just got drunk in the spirit, uh, so it must be legitimate. Let's, let's, go, uh, let's go do shots until we can speak in tongues. I mean, come on, that's, that's, that's going against what God says is right. We do need to test the spirits. We do need to line up behavior against what Scripture says. And we do need to be circumspect. I mean, the Scripture is very clear on this. It says, don't quench the spirit. But what it does say is, and it says, don't despise prophetic utterances, but it says, test everything, hold fast to that which is good. So we don't want to be so open-minded that our brains fall out. And we're just we're just led to and fro by every wind of doctrine and every newfangled practice that comes down the charismatic pipeline. Now everyone is just parroting it for generation after generation. No, I mean, we don't want to be like that. So I think Carlos does does bring a valid perspective. Just in my opinion, he takes it too far, where he erects these doctrinal boundaries that he says God can't work beyond this boundary. And I'm saying, even if the person is Christopher Hitchens, the late Christopher Hitchens, who hated God, he wasn't even an atheist, he was an anti-theist. If God wanted to heal that man of his cancer, God could heal that man of his cancer. I mean, obviously he didn't, but like, I mean, God is so amazingly merciful, and if you don't believe me on that, just read about Manasseh, King Manasseh, and what happened with him, and that'll show you God's mercy. Or read the incident with David and Bathsheba in Psalm 51, and how God forgave him of that sin, and how God continued to work with people that were horrible sinners, or even Aaron. My goodness, what a what a forehead slap that was when he made the golden calf, and yet God still chose him and his sons to be the priests forever? 
to be the priest before him and the people for generation after generation after the golden calf? Yeah. So I think God is way more merciful than we might give him credit for. But at the same time, he's, he does tell us to be discerning and to test everything. Well, I've rambled on longer than I meant to, but I've uh, got to bring things to a close here. We've got some new interviews coming up for the next couple of weeks I'm excited about. Uh, stay tuned for that. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do that at restitutio.org. It's like the word restitution with no N, dot O-R-G. And I'll catch you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.